So welcome back. When we left off before the holidays, the situation in Jerusalem was still volatile. It's only been three or four weeks since Jesus ascended into heaven, less than two weeks later, less than two, like see on the slide, it says 10 days, 10 days later, sometime during that, that week of uh, the Pentecost festival, the Holy Spirit did a mighty work and the little community of believers grew from 120 people to 3,000 believers in a single day. Now, most of those 3,000 have gone back to their homes, scattered throughout the Roman Empire. But the body of believers left in Jerusalem is still growing by leaps and bounds. The apostles are preaching and performing many miracles. There is a huge public rejoicing daily in the temple courts, and more and more believers are being added every day. Alarmed, the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council, orders the apostles flogged and commands them never to preach in the name of Jesus again. But that doesn't deter the apostles at all. The apostles keep right on healing people. The believers begin pooling all their resources and sharing everything. The rich ones sell property as needed and give the money to the apostles, who then distribute it to those in need. You see, everyone is expecting Jesus to come back any minute. As the community grows, though, and Jesus doesn't show up, the administrative burden becomes too much for the 12 apostles to handle alone. So they and the other disciples choose seven additional men to handle the administration so the apostles can focus on preaching. One of the seven is a man named Stephen. He is full of grace and power, and he himself does many miracles among the people. But he runs into trouble with a synagogue called the Freedmen. And the end result is that he is stoned to death, while a young man named Saul holds the cloaks of his executioners. After Stephen's death, it becomes open season on the believers in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, the apostles go house to house, preaching and telling people the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, while Saul goes house to house, dragging those same men, men and women off to prison. Believers begin fleeing Jerusalem, streaming out into Samaria to the north and Judea to the south. But even as desperate refugees, their hearts are full of the good news and they spread it everywhere they go. So after Stephen's death, another one of the seven, a man named Philip, steps right into his shoes, preaching powerfully and performing all sorts of miracles and signs from God. We find out later that Philip survives the persecution. He eventually comes to be called Philip the Evangelist. 
His home is in Caesarea on the coast in Samaria, and he has four daughters. So even though the text doesn't say it here, it makes sense that when persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, that Stephen heads home to Samaria. While he's there, Philip runs into a man named Simon, who is amazing all the people with his performances. Now, Simon is more than just a magician. He's a man who is rightly called a sorcerer. He is powerful with both his magic and the force of his words. He's a real piece of work, though. And according to the historical accounts we have available to us outside of the Bible, he's a charlatan of the first magnitude. Simon Magus, meaning Simon Magician, is such a disruptive force in the early church that a hundred years later, the Roman historian Hippolytus spends an entire chapter in his book, Refutation of All Heresies, talking in detail about Simon's crazy stunts and his far-flung, self-serving theologies. So here in our story, when Philip runs into him, he finds that Simon Magus has people who follow him around, people who are convinced that he wields the power of God. But Philip's healing miracles and his preaching are potent against Simon's sorcery. The people believe Philip's good news about the kingdom of God and about Jesus the Messiah. Men and women come to Philip to be baptized. Well, Simon is beside himself in amazement at the miracles Philip can do. So what does Simon do? Well, if you can't beat him, join him. He, quote, believes and is baptized, and he starts following Philip around. Based on Simon's later actions and the course of his life, I don't think he actually becomes a believer. I think he just sees this as a way to get closer to Philip to try to figure out how Philip is doing the signs and miracles he's doing. Simon's a scammer. So he figures Philip is a scammer too. When the apostles in Jerusalem hear that Samaria is responding to the word of God, they send Peter and John to them. Peter and John discover that even though the people have been baptized by Philip, the Holy Spirit has not yet fallen on them. So Peter and John lay their hands on the newly baptized believers and pray for them. And they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is so interesting to me. The Holy Spirit is clearly a separate gift from believing and being baptized in the name of Jesus. Even being baptized by someone like Philip, one of the seven. It's only when Peter and John, two of the original 12 original apostles, Pray for the new believers that the Holy Spirit falls on them. Well, Simon Magus doesn't miss a trick. He sees that the real power resides in Peter and John, not Philip. So he offers to pay them if they'll give him that power too. <laughs> but Peter says, shame on you, Simon Magus. May your silver be your destruction, for you tried to use it to buy God's free gift. 
You have no part in this, for your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and beseech the Lord to forgive you for even thinking such a thing. For I see that you are bound up in bitter resentfulness and evil doing. Well, Simon Magus knows true power when he sees it, and he is struck with fear at Peter's stern words. He begs, you pray to the Lord for me so that none of what you have spoken will fall upon me. After this, Philip and Peter and John continue testifying earnestly in Samaria. And eventually, Peter and John return to Jerusalem, preaching all along the way. Philip continues his ministry there in Samaria. And some time later, an angel of the Lord says to Philip, Go, go down to that road that runs through the desert from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, Samaria is all this region up here north, and Jerusalem is here, and um, Gaza is west on the coast. You see it? And the roads on your screen, they're really faint white, so I'm they're a little hard to see. Um, but if Philip were to travel the most direct way from Samaria to Gaza, he'd take the shorter road through Gath, the one that goes from Gath to Ashkelon and then south to Gaza. But for some reason, the Lord wants Philip to go the long way around. The Lord wants Philip to take the road that runs south to the Negev Desert, then west to Beersheba, and then back northwest to Gaza. That's a big difference. But it must be really important because the Lord doesn't just speak to Philip in his heart. No, the angel of the Lord said this to him. Now, if you go back and do a study of how this phrase is used in the Hebrew Bible, it's almost always used to mean the Lord God himself appearing in a human form. When it's just a regular angel, this phrase is not used. So in the Hebrew Bible, the angel of the Lord, when, the, when it's the angel of the Lord showing up, this angel of the Lord often looks like a rich or important person or makes occasionally even a warrior. But either, either way, he looks like a person, not an, an alien, not an angel like we would think of. Um, for example, the first time this phrase is used, is when Hagar was lost in the desert and the angel of the Lord came to her and told her she must return to slavery under Abraham's wife, Sarah. But he tells her she is already pregnant and that her son will become a great nation. It is here we find out this abused slave girl is the first human to give a special name to God. She calls him the God who sees. The second time an angel of the Lord appears is when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. The angel of the Lord calls to Abraham in a physical voice and tells him not to do it. 
God shows Abraham that our God is a different sort of God than the Canaanite ones that demanded child sacrifice. And Abraham names that mountain the Lord will provide. The third time is when the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush and tells him to go rescue the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, who am I to do such a thing? And the Lord says, I will be with you. The fourth time is when the prophet Balaam turns crooked and begins selling his gift of prophecy. He agreed to go with one of Israel's enemies and speak a curse over Israel instead of a blessing. And the angel of the Lord physically intervened in such a visible way that the donkey Balaam was riding lay right down in the road and refused to go a step further. Balaam beat that donkey and she turned to him and said, why are you beating me? I have always served you well. In that moment of the talking donkey, Balaam's eyes are opened and he is able to see the angel of the Lord standing in the path, ready to slay him should he take one more step towards speaking a curse over Israel. And the angel of the Lord tells Balaam, you may go, but speak only the words I give you to speak over my people. You see how the angel of the Lord is the Lord? And of course, in the end, those words turn out to be words of blessing. It's quite a amusing story, actually. Sometime later, when Israel is established in the promised land, they are harassed by enemies to the point that their very existence is threatened. And here comes the angel of the Lord. He appears to Gideon and tells him to raise an army, saying, I will be with you. And after that, at a time when Israel is being oppressed by the Philistines, the angel of the Lord appears to another pregnant woman, telling her she's carrying a baby who will rescue Israel. She is to raise this young son carefully. And the angel of the Lord appears many times to King David. With David, the purpose seems to be to remind David that God is the one who's king. This is God's power at work, and David must humble himself to trust God. There are many more times in both the Hebrew Bible and here in the New Testament, and I encourage you to do your own search on this phrase and see where it takes you. But for now, I want us to notice the pattern here. These are not ordinary situations, none of them. These are critical junctures in Israel's history. So when the angel of the Lord shows up to tell Philip to travel by a certain road to a certain place, you can bet that the reason is life and death and has a far-reaching impact. So we need to pay particular attention to what happens next. And we need to listen carefully to how God represents himself or is represented or is named by the people involved. It will have to do, whatever is said, will have to do with the very character of God and God's intervention in the world 
and his desired interaction with his people. So the road Philip is taking is a major artery. It's the way someone would go who is traveling to Africa, because once you hit Gaza, you can turn south along the major highway that runs straight along the coast to Egypt. There are lots of people traveling on this road, merchants, officials, pilgrims, as well as local residents. As Philip starts his trip, he meets a guy traveling in a chariot. That's like trudging along in your flip-flops and meeting a guy in a Maserati. People can tell, uh, Philip can tell from the wheels that this guy is very, very important. As it turns out, this man is a eunuch, serving as treasurer for the queen of the Ethiopians. Apparently, they pass each other here and there as they journey along the road. It sounds like the Ethiopian stops frequently to rest and refresh himself. He's not in a particular hurry. What is astounding to me is that this eunuch has traveled 2,300 miles one way to get to Jerusalem. No telling how many years or months it took. Perhaps the queen sent him to Egypt on business, and he decided that since he'd come all this way, he might as well make the trip to Jerusalem. For you see, the way the passage is worded, it seems that this Ethiopian official made a detour to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is tugging at his heart. The Holy Spirit, in fact, is pulling on both ends of this meeting. The angel of the Lord has already shown up physically to Philip to tell him to take this particular road at this particular time. And this important African official has made this tremendously long trip and is at this very minute sitting in his chariot reading the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit tells Philip, it's that chariot. Stay close to that chariot. Well, Philip has to run to catch up to the chariot. And as he approaches, he hears the eunuch reading Isaiah to himself. And Philip asks, do you understand what you are reading? And frustrated, the eunuch says, no, I need someone to guide me through this. And now Philip knows exactly why the Lord has brought him here to this very place in this very moment. The official invites Philip to sit with him in the chariot. This picture shows him reading in Hebrew, but that's unlikely. He's probably reading the Greek Septuagint version, since Greek is the language of commerce. The passage the official is wrestling with happens to be a messianic prophecy out of Isaiah 53. It says, he was led like lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, justice was taken from him. Who will tell the story of his descendants? For his life was removed from the earth. Now, 
Being left without any descendants was the worst imaginable punishment for the Jews of the Hebrew Bible. They did not believe in a fiery hell. They just believed dead was dead and that a man lived on in his descendants. So what the eunuch is reading here would have been a terrible punishment of whoever is being talked about. So the eunuch asks, please tell me, is this prophet talking about himself or someone else? And Philip begins to explain how this very passage is talking about Jesus, the Messiah. I feel quite sure that Philip points to the climax of Isaiah 53, where it says, you, Lord, make his life, his very soul, a guilt offering, but he will live to see his descendants. I want to point out that in the law of Moses, a guilt offering is not the same as a sin offering. A sin offering is the kind of offering made for when you've broken one of God's commands. But a guilt offering is an offering of reparation to anyone you've unintentionally wronged, be it the Lord or another person. And in making your reparations, you restore everything the way it should be, plus another 20% on top. That's what a guilt offering is. You can read all about this in Leviticus 4, 5, and 6 if you want. So according to this prophecy, Jesus' death was not a sin offering. A sin offering is a sacrifice to God for breaking God's commands, for people breaking God's commands. We Christians need to be a little more careful in our reading. Now, this prophecy says Jesus' whole life was a guilt offering, a restoration, healing and restoring all things to be even better than they were before. Restoration of what you had plus 20%. This is a huge point. Even though the politicians and religious leaders killed Jesus, God had no intention of letting Jesus' life and the work of restoration that he had done be wasted. Isaiah is saying God will raise him up to see the fruit of his life work, to see the seeds he planted grow to fruition, to see his descendants. Isaiah then ends with this. The desire of the Lord will prosper in his, that is the Messiah's hands. He will see the work of his soul and be satisfied by that knowledge. My just servant will make many others just, which is the words just and righteous are interchangeable. He will make many others just as well, for he will bear the load of their iniquities. Philip explains all this and tells the eunuch about Jesus and the good news. Wow, Philip's words have a huge impact on the official. The official says, look, there's some water. What can prevent me from being baptized? Now, remember how I said we need to look to see God's message in this story, for it will be a message of life and death importance? This is it. The eunuch 
realizes that I can be baptized. I, a eunuch, a Gentile, a foreigner, a stranger, I can be baptized and nothing can stand in my way. And he orders the chariot to stop. And he and Philip go down into the water and Philip baptizes this beautiful man. Philip doesn't hesitate, not one moment, over the fact that this man is not Jewish. As they come up out of the water, the Holy Spirit immediately snatches Philip away to continue to travel and preach the gospel all the way back to his home in Caesarea. The eunuch never sees him again, but he goes on his way rejoicing. Now, the way I read this story, this man is not a, a Jew. Um, there is a possibility that he was Jewish, um, but uh, either way, being a eunuch, he would not have been allowed to worship. He would not have been welcomed in the temple. Um, he went to the temple, but it but it's because nobody knew he was a eunuch. Likely, it um, this is a big deal. This is about God welcoming all of us, regardless of who we are or what other people think about us. What a story, right? In our breakout groups, we'll ponder the question of why. Why this particular official? You know, there's plenty of other people that, that it could have been. Why this particular official? And why now? All right. We are back. So good. Back in business. All these spaces. That's all I'm just going to say. <laughs> It's good to see Erica everybody. got cut off and she was making a really good point. Who was? Erica. All, all you missed is she said, and so forth. Uh, <laughs> what was no, the point? What, what were y'all talking I, about? I, well, um, Julie had made a good point about how she kind of felt bad that the eunuch had this powerful experience and then he was kind of left to vent for himself. And so we were going back and forth of like, you know, as believers, sometimes we want things, we want to have a gentle rumble Bible study to help us grow, right? And this eunuch didn't. And so I was making the point that during our sabbatical, we were able to experience God in so many different ways because we were not in this uh, strict religious belief of this is how you have to experience God. So like for the first time, we were able to be like at national parks and experience and feel connected to God because of what we were seeing. It was so majestic and large and it was it was so powerful. And so I was making the point that maybe this eunuch didn't necessarily have to understand everything else that he would read in scripture. But because the Holy Spirit was given in him was given to him, maybe his perspective of he was able to see God everywhere now, whether in his travels with the person he was speaking um, in the countries or the food, like it, it was just now more than what he would read or what us believers would think is the way to connect with God, which would be reading the Bible. 
So that was more than maybe just the education part of it, the theology part of it, the what everybody has said God is part of it. This story seems to be about a much more immediate knowledge of God, right? Right. What what else did y'all have? And and did you have uh, some some contributions there? Yes. Oh, yeah. So, first of all, I think most of us had never heard this story before. Should I oh, tell the part about his? No, I won't tell that part. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, I think it was interesting, and this is what I mentioned to the the group was that in a lot of ways, Christ spread his word through those who were the the more humble people to you know the poor the stricken in this case um i'm gonna tell you guys if you had a chariot it was like having a rolls royce i mean it it wasn't you know jesus walking around on a donkey so this was a a man who was quite influential quite educated because obviously he was reading and so this does not necessarily is not the norm as to who we saw being converted into believers. And I think part of the reason was that because this man was influential and Africa was an important country in those days, not that it isn't now, but, you know, it it was quite wealthy and, and quite influential. And so I think it was very important that, that this man, because of his social status was chosen because I think he would could go back and be more believable to the people because of his social status, and um, he could he could he could speak from his place of privilege. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And we believe rich people because they're rich. <laughs> so, but I I guess I took two besides what Anne was saying because I agree with that the point about this being um, Ethiopia, the spread of Christianity to Africa. And he chose, he asked to be baptized. And then the other point, and I guess just because we're out of the season that made me think of that, because he's not Jewish. I mean, he's not in the, it's like the, the wise men. I think they came from what, Persia? Yeah, they came from the East. It just said the East. So way far away. And they're not Jewish. And so what we're seeing through Jesus Christ I think is um, maybe the assimilation of all the peoples everywhere. And I wish I'd been able to say that like it in group, but. I would love if Renee would share what she talked about, because obviously since everybody in our group was very affirming, we talked about the LBGTQ aspect of all this. Okay. And Renee shared something that um, I thought was very enlightening about who this man probably was. Renee, are you there? She may have stepped away. What did she have to say, Shirley? Um, well, y'all help me out so I get this right, what she was saying. Um, he was probably, over. he probably oversaw somebody's harem mm-hmm. um, that they often put eunuchs in charge of harems because they didn't have to worry about them um, 
having sex with the women in the harem. And that some study that she took. Oh, there she is, Renee. <laughs> I'm I'm here. I couldn't figure out how to unmute myself on my phone. Um, no. <laughs> oh, good, Renee. You share it because I'm I'm messing it up. Okay. Okay. When I was in college, I uh, was a history major. And one of my professors was talking about, uh, we got to talking about harems and the way things were uh, done in harems. And he said that most people think of a eunuch like they would from the movie Shogun, where it's Japanese tradition, where they castrate the person and um, that's how they make, you know, that's how they become a eunuch. And he was saying that historically in a lot of different places that had harems or large, you know, women that were the king's property, um, that a lot of times they were gay men mm -hmm. because even a eunuch could have, you know, would, could have designs on the women where, if they were a gay person, a man, they didn't, you know, they would protect the women, but they didn't have any interest in them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he said, so a lot of times when you see the word eunuch, people automatically go to, you know, the Japanese because of Shogun. But actuality is a lot of times they were just gay men. Yeah, and this, this particular man, it says, was a eunuch. Um, who was in charge of all of the treasury for the queen. Right. Yeah. So he was her CPA. <laughs> he was yeah. her banker. He was her Joseph. He was her right-hand guy. Um, and and uh, it definitely does not say he was made a eunuch. Uh, the way, like, as Renee was saying, um, some scholars use the word eunuch and official interchangeably, but clearly it had significance that this man, for whatever reason, is not going to be a threat to a queen or a woman, or, you know, if he's spending a lot of time with a woman. Um, and Jesus talked about that a little bit. He said, you know, some people are eunuchs because they, uh, you know, get castrated there may and other people are born that way um which would speak to being gay um and and this this whole uh idea of uh being that there be that there's two paths to being a eunuch in this case a eunuch meaning you know um with respect to women um that that there is zero nothing in the bible about if you are gay then you're less than or can't worship or none of that there is quite a bit um, in the bible about if you're castrated if if you've been castrated there's um in the mosaic law you can't go in the temple you are excluded from the community um and and it's pretty harsh uh, it, it deuteronomy 23 says no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the lord um that's the niv 
and um how do you think the lord feels about that that's in the mosaic law but there's a lot of things in that mosaic law that don't seem to be consistent with the lord what do you think the lord feels about this about excluding people from worship for this i think this story hits the nail on the head there in that this man had such a desire to know to understand this prophecy and when philip explained it to him he became i would say filled with the holy spirit to where he wanted baptism he wanted that closer relationship and he said what is to deny me that yeah it's like he found his tribe he said that's who i am i am a jesus follower and the light bulb went on and he realized there was man's rules and God's desire to be with us. And they didn't reconcile exactly the same. And he said, what's stopping this from letting me have this relationship with God? I'm going to do it. Exactly. So what do we do with the law of Moses? Did God change? What do we do with this? Well, I think we keep those first big ones. <laughs> I really like those first big ones. Which are? You know, loving God, the three of dedicating yourself to the Lord, no other gods before me. And then those murders things and stuff like that. I'm real keen on those. So, so which would fall under do unto others as you would have them do unto you mm-hmm. right you know exactly. love your neighbor as yourself that would kind of cover murder obviously okay there we go okay. yeah and i think jesus came and fulfilled those laws for us you mm-hmm. know he gave us simpler guidelines like you said do unto others and love your lord mm-hmm. those were the simple rules he gave us yeah. it's not that hard but it is Renee, did but you have some? It's really not that hard. It's really you don't hard. have to make or 87 rules. To... It's really not that hard. Yeah. I kind of see it as another way of Jesus when he was saying, you know, I come to fulfill the law. I think a lot of times it's like, I see kind of Jesus being like, you know, God was like, okay, I've tried this for x amount of years to get to these people and i'm just going to go down and explain it to them <laughs> you know yeah um, explain it see... renee huh you said explain it i like that yeah. <laughs> i mean well, he's like you know, really when they gave the, the big 10 to start with yeah. um the first four were about your relationship with god and the last six were about your relationship with your fellow man yeah. So it's and kind of the Jesus same thing, down, just different words, right? Exactly. And when yeah. Jesus came down, he made it even simpler than the 10. He summarized it in two. And I think human beings tend to make it more difficult. Human beings tend to say, okay, he gave us these 10 or he gave us this two. What do those actually mean? Well, they actually mean you can't do this and you can't do that. And you can't do the other thing. 
and you can't do. And so we as humans complicate it. Well, you know, when I said it's not that hard, but it is, it is for some people because of the way we're groomed as, as growing up in the church, we have a lot of judgments and ideas that aren't necessarily the kindest to people. We tend to want to, if they're not like us, they might be wrong. And you have to get past that to be able to see the love in each other and accept that and share that with one another. You don't need all those prefab ideas that pe good meaning, pe well-meaning people share those ideas. They don't mean to be negative or, or <clears throat> unkind. But when you plant a seed, sometimes they grow that way. And it's not that hard to just see love and feel love and care for one another. Yeah. And I, I think that, that Christians certainly, we want to, we very often hang on to these verses that we've cherry picked out of the Hebrew Bible and and use those to exclude someone or to tell them that they're how they are and who they are is wrong and unacceptable to God. And we use it to draw fences and boundaries and push them away. And the the eunuch is a perfect example of that, right? Um, whether it be someone castrated or someone who is born gay, whatever. Um, it. And we as Christians so often say, well, but it's right there, plain black and white. God said, God said, this is, this is a problem. Well, it's interesting, too, that you're talking in our group about, again, I, I'm sure we don't have the whole conversation, right, written down. But the the part that was included was not him prior to the baptism going through the Ten Commandments, you know, going through the list of rules, you know, even we're talking, I had mentioned the woman caught in adultery, there isn't even the slip in of the goat, now go and sin no more before Philip disappears. It was, there was none of that. Or there may, again, we don't know, right? That, that's certainly that didn't, It certainly didn't survive in the record. It wasn't the main point. Certainly. Right. Which is fascinating in comparison to some, some other um, stories where we, I think, pick what we think the main point is. You know, here's an example where all were welcome. There wasn't a list of rules. There wasn't a discipleship plan after he said the four laws. I, it's just fascinating. And freeing, I think. It is. It is. And I, 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 want, to, I want to read you something. Um, I'm going to cry. Because this eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, right? When, and, when, and Philip explained it to him and he got baptized. Now this eunuch is on his way home, right? He's coming, he's coming back. Philip's gone. And just as you all pointed out at the beginning of this discussion, the eunuch is alone and he has no one to explain 
Isaiah to him anymore. But do you, don't you think he continued to read? You know, if he was in Isaiah 53, he would have continued to read, right? On his long journey home. I would think so, but he would have a new heart. And I want to read you Isaiah 56, just three chapters later, verses three through five. These are, I'm quoting the NIV here. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Ah. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Wow. Wow. This is like a prophecy. This is like a prophecy come true then. Wow. Can you imagine the eunuch reading those words? Wow. Bye, Joe. Bye, Joe. This is in the Hebrew Bible. God is God all the way through. The words I just read, That is the heart of God. So much of what gets quoted to the people in our world who are eunuchs by birth or by by physical issues are quoted the other parts. That are not part of God, that have that that are not taught well, that have other context, that have other reasons. This, this part in Isaiah 56, this is the heart of God, and it matches the heart of God in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. That's beautiful. That's pretty powerful, huh? It just gives me chills. It makes me cry. I just can... you. Know, Imagine being that eunuch on that road, getting to that part and, and having the chariot pull over. I'm Just- loving looking at this from God's point of view, because God's timeline is different than ours. You know, God's interacting timeline. So when Isaiah was being penned, God already knew this story about Philip and this eunuch was going to happen. And it's almost like God specifically put that there for him. My gosh. And that's why this story is such a big deal. That's why the angel of the Lord shows up in this story. This is a great big deal in the in It's significant to who Israel is and who they are in the world. And um, I, I also quoted Isaiah 19 from the NIV. 
that says in that day, there's that phrase again, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Do you know what's in what Assyria is nowadays? It is the intersection of Iraq, Turkey, Iran, and Syria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel be Israel will, will be third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth, all of them, Iraq, Turkey, Iran, Syria, Egypt, Israel, in that day will be a blessing on the earth as the Lord Almighty will bless them saying, blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. That's a lot to take in. You know, Gail, I was thinking this eunuch was seeking understanding of the word. And that tells me that something was missing or he had a yearning to understand more. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think before we find the Lord, aren't we all eunuchs? Aren't Mm -hmm. we seeking something? Aren't we wanting a deeper understanding, a, a more close and intimate relationship? And that allows the Holy Spirit to open our hearts for us to accept that gift. That's so in a way we're all the eunuch before we have that deeper understanding and Philip explains it to us or Pastor Gail. (laughs) (laughs) That's profound. That's beautiful. I hope that you all felt the life in this lesson and understood that this in your study groups, the significance, the fact that this guy was the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia and Ethiopia becomes the leader in the world for commerce shortly thereafter. is just God's hand is all over this. And um, I didn't want you to miss it. So this was kind of a little, a little byway um, story, standalone story. And next week, we'll, we will start talking about Saul. I love you. It's just fills my heart to see you all, to hear your voices. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. Bye. See you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.